Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hi, Ann Friedman. Hi, how's it going? You know, hanging in there, hanging in there. <laughs> I am really excited to talk about books in part because I feel like my reading is at a particularly low ebb. I know a lot of people earlier in the pandemic were saying that they were having trouble reading and that was not my experience then, but it is very much my experience now. So I am ready to talk about books and get remotivated. You know, I'm honestly in a very good groove of like reading and it's really funny because I was having that thing of like, oh yeah, reading is hard. And then I started reading like uh, straight men books again and I was like, okay, (laughs) back. (laughs) That's the real, that's the truth of my reading um, patterns is that um, there's a big hole in the like man canon in my reading. And I was like, what have these dudes been up to? And it turns out, and men are writing really good books. I mean, men are writing good books, bad books, and middling books, much like everyone is. I feel like... Um, yeah, I just didn't you know because I wasn't reading them. Now that I'm reading them, I was like, I get what all the hullabaloo is about. They're writing great books. Oh, man. Yeah. I um, I respect that. I think I read a couple books by men last year. I'm, I'm failing to think of actual titles, but I'm sure I did. I'm sure I read at least one or two. <laughs> I'm telling you, everyone should shake up their reading diet. It's very exciting. So it's been very exciting for me. What are you most excited about that you've read lately? Okay, two books that I've read lately that I like really, really, really enjoyed. The first one is this um, nonfiction. You know how I love nonfiction, Anne. Mm-hmm. Um, just like so well-researched really moving like a story I had never heard before it like it's the Aminatu Venn diagram like every like the the Venn diagram of the nonfiction I like it's called the Eagles of Heart Mountain a true story of football incarceration and resistance in World War II America Uh, and it's by Bradford Pearson and it's great it's like the story of this like World War II incarceration camp in Wyoming that um had a high school football team so here we are, like, incarcerating, like, Japanese people, like, Japanese internment, that happened, and here is a story about this, like, um, football team at this incarceration camp, and so, you know, it's a, it's, it is a story about football, it's basically a story about resiliency that is masquerading about a story uh, about sports, which mm-hmm. is also why I like it a lot. But honestly, like the research, Anne, is 10 out of 10. So even if you do not like sports, you do not like football, you like don't care about this stuff, it, is, um, it was such a good lens to understand that specific like, kind of resistance in World War II America. And I like this kind of book, especially in this kind of moment, because it like distracts me from the coup and also <laughs> takes me back. It also puts me in this place where I was like, oh, here are like historical precedents for how people are resisting. And also, there are so many never before told stories of resiliency. And this one was so great. 
The other book that I read that I really enjoyed is uh, Red Pill by Hari Kunzru. And it's a very anxious book. I will not lie to you. If you are in like a deep, if you're one of those people that you're anxious and you don't need more anxiety in your life, like don't do it. But I'm an anxious person who needs like anxiety narratives to keep going. So (laughs) if you need fuel in the tank for your anxiety, like this is the book for you. (laughs) I'm warning you now. It's like so paranoid and dreamy and it's great, but this is a novel and it's basically the story of this man um, who is going through like a deep midlife crisis and (laughs) moves from Brooklyn to Germany. And in Germany, he starts being obsessed with this um, cop show called blue lives that is just like very compelling. And it's just like very bleak and like, you know, that Darwinian view of life, the whole thing. And it really just like unravels a lot for him. Like, you know, and, and because he's a writer, he's just like, does my writing have any value at all? And they're just all like, it is such a like novel for right now, because every question that that book is asking are kind of the, the same things that we are dealing with, like in this moment of watching, um, you know, the, like <laughs> the rise of the, the, the fascist like insurrection. And, um, I don't know. It's just like such an intellectual book, um, which I have to admit, like I, as we know from this podcast, like I am not a good like reader of novels. Um, But this novel like really got me. I like, I don't know. I keep thinking about it. It has not left me. And I think it's like really well written. It has these like really incredible ways that it, um, it ties like philosophy back to this moment and to like a lot of other things. So all I'm saying is like, Men write amazing books. Read, <laughs> read men. Like, this is amazing. I'm like, and my copy is dog-eared of, like, Red Pill Everywhere. And I wrote, like, at three different times, are we living in a simulation? <laughs> <laughs> That's my experience of reading it. And it's so good. And I know I sound like a complete idiot. Like, one of those, like, you know, like, people who read novels know this. But like I said, like, I'm an idiot. And every time I'm like, oh, wow, like, this is how you can stimulate the imagination. And also, like, Hari is like a wonderful writer. Like I've read so many other things that he's written, including his previous book, White Tears. The writing is just like impeccable, you know? So even just like on a craft level, I am just so in awe because I just do not have the imagination to write a novel. So I just, I I love people who can do it. And this one is like dreamy and paranoid and anxious, like I said earlier. Wow. A ringing endorsement for work by men. Like truly. (laughs) Listen, let it not be said that I am like fair in my uh, media diet. Mm, it's true. You are fair. I, I am dipping back into books or like rather easing back into books with a really excellent short story collection called Sarah Land by Sam Cohen. And this book is not out until early March. So if you're listening to this, it's in the pre-order category. But it is... The through line is that the protagonists of almost all, I think almost every single short story in this collection is named Sarah. And um, it is a really, I don't know, like if you've ever thought about like, do you have anything in common with people who like share your name or who share like some singular superficial detail? It is, um, I don't know, it is a super interesting um, like light tether through the stories of all of these different women and it is like um you know all these different takes on queerness on like gender and violence and um 
Also, like, you know, some kind of weird fantastical possibilities um, where it's one of those books where you're like, is this happening in the character's mind or is this like, did we go sci-fi in this one story in the collection? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, It it is really, um, it is really bringing me back to books in a good way. It's like, I think there's something about the short story format. Um, I also feel this way about essay collections where when when I have had a gap between books for a while, it helps bring me back to like remembering that I love books and want to read them all the time. So that's where I'm at. I recommend it even if you are not in a reading gap phase yourself. And um, yeah, Sarah Land. What a good like idea. This is what I'm saying when I say that I don't have imagination. You know, I'm like, what? You can write a short story collection about just people named Sarah. That's amazing to me. I know. I know. So many different Sarahs in this world, many of whom I know and love. (laughs) I Shout out to all I my love. Sarahs, all my personal Sarahs. Well, um, welcome to the Winter Books episode. <laughs> <laughs> where, where we talk about the books we love. Uh, the books we're reading. And we also have some incredible authors we're talking with today. Man, I'm excited about today's episode. I talked to Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham, who are the authors of Black Futures, Kimberly is a writer, curator, and activist. Jenna is a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. She is also a sound healer, a Reiki practitioner, an herbalist, and a community care worker. Black Futures, their book, is an anthology that answers the question of what it means to be Black and alive. The book is basically a collection of images, photos, essays, memes, dialogues, recipes, tweets, poetry, so much. You literally go from, like, conversations with activists and academics to memes to Instagram posts to these, like, beautiful essays and paintings and there's infographics and um it is truly like a very good gift to yourself and uh, a gift to someone you love like you know like the hefty like a hefty book this is um this is like where we're at and i i loved our conversation about um the work that they're doing together i can't wait to listen Hi, y'all. Hello. (laughs) I'm just laughing because the most inappropriate question I feel to ask anyone these days is, how are you doing? I was like, that is just inviting chaos. (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) So my question is, are you hanging in there? My God. I'm the kitty in the poster. Buy a branch. (laughs) <laughs> hang in there kitty um, I'm actually really good today and um, Jen and I are coming off of another like work call and I was I'm just feeling very good I, I spent my weekend between the Toni Morrison documentary and the new Fran Lebowitz series and I just feel really like I don't know I want to say empowered but that's a lie mm. but I feel like supercharged mm. Mm. Finding out that Fran Lebowitz does not own a telephone, like a cell phone, was not surprising. It's like every like smart person of a certain era does not own <laughs> communication. <laughs> like, yeah, Look, you know, if you can make your career without a cell phone, there's no reason to get one. I Andy. know. Uh, that that made me really it's like what i'm st- stuck on from that documentary that and how much like martin scorsese is in love with her you know i know uh, they were very cute <laughs> they were very cute i know i'm gonna get rid of my phone in 2021 that's my new goal i'm like i can do is this so? yes sorry babes you'll always have a direct line to me i promise 
I'm trying to remove the device from my body. I'm gonna like make you like Joaquin Phoenix and her, and it's just gonna be my voice. Can I watch you while you sleep? Oh my god, so crazy. You know how like uh, Mike Tyson really is into pigeons. I feel like we should figure out we should figure out like carrier pigeons for twenty twenty. Yes, I love you and your solution oriented ass. Like I love that. Listen, I am I am also trying to free myself from the shackles of the devices. So you know, whoever has it figured out has it figured out. But you know, all of that said, um, thank you both for coming on call your girlfriend uh you are two like friends of the show forever and ever and ever and i really want to discuss your book black futures Mm -hmm. because it's so important you know it was an important book when it came out um at the end of last year it is an important book this year and it will remain a really important like piece of both writing and testimony really to the way that black lives are led and so um i just wanted to say that but um you know, in the forward of the book, you talk about how the entire project came together because of a DM, essentially. And so, you know, you had like conceived of it as a zine. And I like, I love that kind of collaborative process where something like sparks something for both of you. And I love that you really documented that. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how the collaboration came to be. Yes. I mean, listen, Yogati had to write it all goes down in the DMs. That's where (laughs) all the good things happen these days. Yeah, I had been a longtime admirer of Kimberly's. And I really do think the perk of being a writer, there are a few, but one is you always have a reason to reach out to people you admire. You know, you always can be like, hey, do you want to get coffee and just talk? And not in a pick your brain kind of way, but just like, is there an opportunity to collaborate? Are we like-minded? Like, you know, at least that's how things felt in, in 2015, which was a softer, a softer time for the internet, I think. And I had been mostly working on, for the times, covering technology stories, like looking at how social media works, how people are using social media. And I just felt like, A, I wanted to do something beyond that that wasn't entirely possible at my day job at that time. And I'd been, been really just delighted by how black people use the internet. Like I just really felt like in all the stories about like, unless either the stories about how we were using technology were really kind of, you know, I don't know, they were like skimmy and kind of gross or getting it wrong or there were none at all. And I also didn't want to write one of those stories either way, but I did want to try to think about a project that got its arms around black creativity in the time of social media. And so I just reached out to Kimberly, you know, it's just like, I don't know, I'm just going to toss this penny into the wishing well and see what happens. And Kimberly was like, let's meet. So that's really, that was really the beginning. And I, I, I've been saying this, but I think it's really true. Like I really have a lot of gratitude for Kimberly's just openness because she really didn't know me from, you know, the next person who was sliding into her DMs asking for things. And it feels really special just to be given the time of day and just being met with such a like spirit of generosity. And so that's something I think a lot about, like, one of the reasons we're sitting here today is because Kimberly was just so, you know, porous, just like available. And I really appreciate that. Oh, I love hearing that. Kimberly, what, like, what was the feeling for you when you like saw this DM and then you kind of saw the potential? Like, why, why are we here today? 
It's interesting because there is like the me of that moment, which was like, oh, my God, Jenna Wortham is DMing me, which I think anyone would feel. Of course, Jenna has this incredible career as a critical thinker in the public realm that manifests in many different spaces. But I think at first I was just kind of like honored and taken aback. I think what happens sometimes, especially when dealing with black culture, it is... It's just like such a crapshoot sometimes in the ways in which you're recognized and the ways in which you're seen and the ways in which your contributions are really counted. And so it was really amazing to have an opportunity to connect with a peer who saw some of the work that I was doing. And so I was really game just from that off the bat. Um, And then, of course, with a little bit of distance, I think for me on a more like human cellular level, it was just meeting vulnerability with more vulnerability. Um, Jenna came in with this idea that was not fully formed, which is of course like such a, like sometimes dangerous thing to do and really trusted me with it and trusted me with my input on it because as you both know, I'm very opinionated. Um, and, uh, we came together in that first meeting and it went from being a zine into being a book almost immediately. And we didn't know each other from Tom, you know, before we met up and we left and we're just like, we're going to be in this endeavor together. And I mean, no one would advise anyone to do that. Um, (laughs) But it worked out because we both came in with a certain level and degree of tenderness, which has remained, I think, more than anything else in our dynamic and our relationship. Mm. Oh, I'm so inspired by that. You know, Anne and I wrote in our book about how Part of our collaboration was really because we were just like nerdy bitches who wanted to find a structured way to spend time with each other. Like, uh, I like, we don't like to go to bars or like just sit down alone. We need to like do something together, activities. I wonder how much of, you know, like your calculation was that too, when you two were meeting each other where you were like, oh, I actually want to get to know this person and I want to understand their brain and working with them is like the best way to do that. Mm. Well, this morning on our, we were, we always have a, a block of time that we work on Mondays together. And it's just like a very gentle while we're having breakfast or I'm having breakfast, just kind of, you know, responding to our emails and doing our various things. And I was just like, I love working with you, Kimberly. It was just nice. Like, it's just nice to start the week together. It's nice to be really gentle together. I mean, I do think we've had to be really careful about about the work-life balance in our friendship, you know? And I, I wonder if that's come up, um, I mean, for you and Anne too, like how do you manage that? I would love to hear you talk about that because I think in our, you know, hyper-productivity culture, it's easy to spend all of your time together working and there's always more work to do. And I think that that's something that, you know, both of our happiness meters go down if we're really just spending all of our time together working. But it has been amazing to have an excuse to be like, we can go look at this, you know, art together. We can go to this theater, like as friends, but also as like-minded creators and collaborators. I mean, that that part has been ridiculously fun just to be like, put it on the business card and <laughs> we work it. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like you, you have to protect time for your friendship. Like mm-hmm. you, the intimacy of your friendship can be very intertwined with the intimacy of your creative collaboration. But 
if you are not like for us, at least, you know, for me and Anne, we, we have definitely have to like delineate that time because like you said, otherwise uh, we could work 24, seven, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, it's wonderful to find someone that you want to work with all the time because I have had less than stellar coworkers, like people that I'm like, I am happy to never work with you again. So when you find someone that you can work with, it works. But you know, at the same time, it's like, friendship is a different kind of work, you know, Mm. that needs to be tended to. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you want to find people that you can be human next to. And it's such an ongoing pursuit because it can be so exhausting and tiring to show up as your fullest self. And I think that there's some ways that especially like the overachievers among us can like hide ourselves in our work capacity. And then the personal side is like maybe where all those feelings are hidden, but being able to bring this really 360 version of yourself to meetings and to connections is so valuable and so important. Like there were so many heartbreaks and so many like familial shifts and so many ways in which the world changed from the moment that we met. Like we, we met and connected in 2015 and of course, like the entire Trump era happened. And so there's these incredible moments where it's just like today isn't a work day. Like it couldn't possibly be a work day and you have to have, people in your network, in your community, in your life who help you to remember that. Like I was literally trying to schedule an interview um, with another friend, Koa Beck, who I love. And I want to shout out her book, White Feminism, because it is an an exceptional text. But I was like, let's do next Wednesday. And she was like, that's definitely the inauguration. And so just having people that you like want to rub up against, but can also just keep you grounded in fact and reality um, is I think a necessary companion when you're trying to just be and do things that are maybe bigger than what you could have imagined that you could do in your lifetime. And I feel very, very much like that when I look at Black Futures. Like, there were so many moments where I was like, I don't think we can do this. And it was really the partnership with Jenna that it was just like, we we are doing it. We are in the process of doing it. There's no reason to speak negatively about it. We have to, you know, have this really awakening moment. And, you know, maybe we need to tend more to spirit or tend more to this. Um, but it's happening. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen. Ooh, um, you know, I'm wondering if you could each speak um, to kind of the editorial vision of the book, because one thing that I was so struck by and enjoyed so much, and I found also really surprising because Jenna, you and I have had this conversation so many times about how, you know, like we are not like linear thinkers. Mm. Um, I felt that every single piece in the book reminded me of a previous thread in the book, like in a way that was just like very jarring to experience. I was like, oh, wow, like these are really building on top of each other. Or this reminds me of something a couple of pages ago. And I, I, I just like wonder how you did that because, mm. you know, it's easy, I think, with a book like this to be like, okay, I'm going to read like a couple of things or I'm going to flip a couple pages and then I'll be back tomorrow. And then, you know, like you keep doing it. And I've enjoyed that. But there were also days where I was like, I am going to sit here and like we are getting through half of it. Mm. Because... <laughs> It is like, you know, just that endorphin rush of like, oh, wow, like this is the body of work that just like builds on itself. It was so pleasurable. And I think also just left me, it left me thinking so much about the connective tissue between like, you know, so, so many things in our culture. I appreciate that read. I think in some ways that the connective tissues are really due in large part to the nature of the invitation to each contributor. Um, Everyone kind of worked in relative silos. 
um, with the exception probably of instances where you see work paired with an artwork, uh, because we tried to make sure to get consent in those cases. Um, but we really went to every single person and either asked for something that was pre-existing from them or asked them to dream up something in relationship to the same prompt of what does it mean to be Black and alive right now. We really went to everyone with the same kind of energy and excitement and interest in creating a book project that could begin to do some of the work of cataloging what we were observing in terms of cultural shift towards this like amazing flourishing of Black culture. And so I think that that is maybe it is like we gave everyone runway um, in a way that I think, especially as a writer, um, and I think Jenna would agree, there's just not that many opportunities where we get the invitation to do what we want in the ways that we want. And that I think is one of the book's greatest shining successes is that for the most part, everyone is represented in this really, I don't know, like there's a flexibility in the reception mm -hmm. um, that I hope people feel as readers and as contributors. Mm, mm, mm. I love that, Kimberly. I would also add that, you know, we, I think the book is also a reflection of our preoccupations, you know, and the things that were engaging to us as we spent time collecting things and, and, figuring out what we were going to memorialize. And so there's so much of the book that feels like a time capsule. And so you go from things like Black Simmers, which was like this wild thing that felt, you know, like maybe not expected, you know, like not something people would expect to be in the book as something worth archiving, but something that Kimberly and I both are deeply invested in, you know, just like sort of how we show up in spaces online beyond the spaces that are the most visible, like what are the priorities? And I think they, I don't know, it's really interesting. I think a lot about how the book started to shift as our purview shifted. And something I, I always think about is when Kimberly came back from TED and was really revved up about ocean justice, you know, and then we got this incredible essay by Ayanna Johnson about climate change and coastal communities and how that affects Black people. And you know, the, it's one of the best pieces in the book, in my opinion. You know, it's so important and so interesting and just eye-opening. And I think that's true with, um, you know, even thinking about the Colleen Smith tapestry, which wish I had the book in front of me so I could give the page number. I'm looking at the book, but it's not physically in my hand. Um, you know, and, and Colleen had just done this incredible installation in the lobby of the Whitney of these really beautiful, ornate banners that, you know, when I walked into the Whitney and saw and was like really like taken aback and was like damn like maybe you know and and of a desire for the book to be as multifaceted and multimedia as possible was like maybe this should go in the book like it really in my mind does reflect the ways we were kind of tabbing through the world and tabbing through our lives and moving in these you know increasingly more interesting and bigger concentric circles around each other in our communities and I do feel like I don't know, it feels like both of our brains on the page. And that's something I really love about everything that's in there right now. It feels like both of our brains on the page. I love that, um, man. Uh, you know, this book is, it's very black. It is very <laughs> queer. It is very kinky, um, which I like, you know, again, like a thrill. You never know what you are going to get. I, um, I wonder if you could talk about, you know, the, the thought that went behind, like, commissioning the pieces that you did, you know, mm -hmm. in whole, and, and what, like, kind of, what story you were trying to tell, and what balance you were trying to strike, because 
I imagine that like commissioning is one thing. And then when everything comes in, it's like, okay, now we have, now we have to like make it into something. Mm. Oh, I love when I think about commissions in the book, um, there are several different iterations, but I think almost immediately of the conversation series that we did for the book. And then um, the really brilliantly crafted social media essays that we have in the book, um, because a lot of this text and what makes it, I guess, time appropriate is this interest in um, social media and in the ways in which social media has afforded us the opportunity to connect with each other on a global scale in completely unprecedented ways. Um, and so I think being able to pair someone like Sam Irby and Sam Bailey in conversation or Sadie Barnett and Simone Brown in conversation or uh, Rembert Brown and Ezra Edelman in conversation is just kind of like, I don't know, like I'm always kind of doing fantasy football with brilliant people <laughs> uh, where I'm kind of like, I want to know what you think, but I also won't know that this person might not exactly agree with you or this work really informs this work. Um, and so how can we pull each other together? Um, and then in relationship to the social media essays, there's just so much that's garnished when a, a hashtag really pops off. Like there's not, it's not even like a super articulate idea. It's just like the hashtag can be such a wealth of information, um, whether that's as an organizing principle for organizing and, and really like grassroots organizing and connectivity um, in relationship to a hashtag like Black Lives Matter or a hashtag like Thanksgiving with Black Families where we commissioned the incredible Z-Way um, to write an essay responding to that hashtag and that flourishing that happened where it was just this kind of like invitation into what it means to be black at this time of the year and this really like difficult holiday, but also this room for like talking about black family structures and talking about black humor. Um, and so I think for us, it was really, um, yeah, it was this opportunity to build record um on our own terms and with the generosity of our contributors and the brilliance of our contributors. Mm -hmm. I also like want to talk a little bit about, you know, the fact that the publishing industry in general is extremely lazy when it comes to like the way that they think about black authors and what they consider black books. You know, this, I, you know, we, we heard so many stories in 2020 about, people buying anti-racist books and then never showing it. <laughs> Truly and the best story of the year. I mean, it's, it's so nuts. You're like, wow, so many anti-racist books, but so many racists. Like, what's happening here? Uh <laughs> also, so many anti-racist books that got returned. Never picked Ooh. up. Returned. Oh, or never picked up. And there was that incredible that. piece on Lit Hub that was about all these books that got back-ordered because people canceled their books because the window of delivery was too long. Right. It's like you learned about racism in July and then you ordered a million books. So we have to like make the books for <laughs> you. And now you're mad at the delivery window. But, you know, I also just think about how many just explicitly anti-racist, you know, like textbook kind of books were on bestseller lists and were the books that people were touting which is, you know, I'm like, there is a there is a marketplace for those books. And I think there is a place for them to exist. But the project that you know, you are engaged in is so explicitly different than, from that. And it is also it's the difference for me between being like, hi, like, here's how you be anti racist, which the answer is always like, just be not racist. Mm -hmm. um, whatever, let's write uh, 300 pages about that. And, and then there is the work of like, hi, actually, here is what, um, 
like black people do not just have to write about racism and they do not just have to write about their experiences within, um, you know, like white supremacy and talking to, to, to white folks. And I wonder how much of that, you know, was kind of like in the background for you, both as you were putting this book together, but more importantly, as the book like came out into the world, because I, I find that, um, you know, white publishing has a really hard time like contextualizing books by black people well yeah i mean and a question we were getting really early on was like what will non-black people get out of this and we were like we don't know i mean like a google response form and like collect data i mean i don't know like we're black and we made this book very intentionally you know, from our perspective for other Black people. And like, not to say, I mean, you know, please everyone read this book. There's something in it for everyone. But my day job is service journalism, you know, more or less, like pretty much. It's explaining and digesting and processing what's happening, you know, at any given moment in the world to an audience. That is not what this book project was. Like, that's not how I wanted to spend my, you know, 40% of my creative time that was not going to my day job was not about, you know, being legible, you know, what does it feel like to just immerse yourself in Black ideas, right? And Black privacy and Black secrecy and Black joy and Black grief without it needing to be having like a sidebar. And those asides, you know, that the New York Times always has, it's like the optimistic challenge, comma, and then like a, a really inadequate four word explication of a thing that is so annoying right and it just felt really good to be like this is not that like this is this book is so many things but it is a hundred percent not that and that was interesting though is that when I can't remember what stage of the process this was in but at some point we got back um a proof or some feedback on the, the chapter titles within the book and some of them have black in front of the word and some of them don't so like black is still beautiful but then anytime we had you know it was like black legacy you know they just added black in front of every single word in the <laughs> chapter sections. and i don't want to harp on this too long but it is something that keeps me up at night i want to be smart and like paraphrase tony morrison but i don't have the chops today it makes me think a lot about um there was this Speaking of the times, there was a T. Greats issue that included Carrie James Marshall. And he had this really brilliant quote about his work not necessarily being a critique to the larger art world, um, but really it being about wanting to be juried amongst your peers. And I feel that so deeply about this book where it's like it's not black futures in opposition to a white world. Like there is there is a white world on the periphery, of course, but it is not central and it doesn't have to be central. You know, like we as think as a people, as marginalized people, whatever margin you find yourself within, we grow so accustomed because we are so deeply socialized into submission and understanding that things are not made for us. And I think that that's OK. I think that that's OK. And we have, in that same turn, the agency to be able to center ourselves. And that's mm. what this book is. Mm. And so I don't give a fuck. Like, I, I, I understand, like, I want everyone to have it because I think everyone can benefit from it. I still read the book that we fucking made and benefit from it. Mm -hmm. But am I going to tell you what a white audience should get from it? I don't know. I will never be white. And I don't care to be. And I think that's okay. You know? Like, in the same way that I'm reading all this other shit on my shelves... I'm not like, oh my God, if only, you know, like, no, I'm going to read this because it's a good book. And what we made is a good book. And if that's not enough for you to buy it, I don't know what to tell you. 
I mean, the reason that this is mind-boggling to me is because I'm like, we, all three of us have managed to read books written by white people, and somehow we have gotten the, you know, I'm like, we've gotten the, the, the imagination and the messaging and the whatever we were supposed to take out of it. So I was like, I always find it baffling that that is always assumed that, you know, if you are not white, you can consume white art and you're like, okay, I know what falling in love is. I understand what, you know, like personal growth is like whatever the thing was that you were supposed to take out of it. But whenever the creator is not white, the question always is what will white people take out of it? And you're like, this is such a baffling question. Did we all not watch Bridgerton? And get something from it. I mean, come on. Bridgerton though is just like such. I mean, oh. I'm not gonna lie to you, Jenna. So please do not revoke my black card. But I have not watched Bridgerton. I have I watched know. every TikTok about Bridgerton, and I let me tell you, Bridgerton is not a black story at all. So don't let yeah. people lie. Don't to let you. anyone lie to you. There is no card to be revoked because there is no access to the card. The card is completely invisible in the relationship to that storytelling don't let anybody no, tell the you part different. is that if chanda makes it we are uh, like we uh, we have uh, yes, you know what yes, i mean yeah. but yeah yes. i was just like you just made a period tv show that's race blind but somehow there's race as a part of it i don't understand um also yeah it's I, not race blind. i'll it's get to it in 2023 but it's not for me right now <laughs> but yeah. i don't watch scandal um that's my admission oh. and i feel good about that oh yeah i I only saw seven episodes of Scandal, and then I had to come. I had to come off the train. Um, but I enjoy. I enjoy everyone's enjoyment of Scandal. So, yeah, you know, that's my Scandal. <laughs> the thing is, we can be happy for others and participate. You know, it's great. Weirdly, uh, though, I do the novel idea. I, I really <laughs> think Bridgerton does kind of illustrate this thing we're talking about, though, which is this thing that media often does, which is that like will say, look, there are Black characters, there are Black storylines without acknowledging the ways in which those characters are not centralized at all. They are still marginalized, even though they're trying to make this commentary or they're trying to be part of some, I don't know, like whatever whatever point that show was trying to make about race, it did not get right. And maybe in the next eight seasons that have been greenlight, they'll figure it out. But I also feel like I just get so tired of media telling me this is for me or this is something that mm-hmm. involves my perspective or has something to do with me when it fucking doesn't need to. Like you actually don't, you can just make this show and have your ahistorical, first of all, ahistorical is never ahistorical, point blank. But you can make this show and you can make your little swirl sister, you know, period costume drama without like, go ahead if that's what you want to do, but it doesn't have to be a selling point for me that there are black characters in it you know it's still a white tv show and I, I don't know it's a little tangential but i just feel like i just was tired of that also as being an excuse for media it's like there can be so many different types of projects in the world like we can have this and we can have other stuff too yeah we need actual criticism it's like is it good like i want to know <laughs> is it good there's so many years especially in relationship to visual arts and especially black artists where there are critics who are like, there was art on the walls and the artist is black. I'm like, can we just, like, come on, come off it. Like, it's an exceptional, like, is it an exceptional product? Is it something that we should turn to? You know, like, they talk about This Is Us, like, it's like the second coming. Like, hey, is it good or not? Hey, <laughs> I love This Is Us. I, you should, I, I love This You know, like... Is it? I don't know. Like that's that's the thing, and I think that there's been some opportunities in relationship to this book where we've seen writers or reviewers or people who we've had conversations with who really get that. That like we worked really hard to make something exceptional, and if it's not, tell me why not. 
Um, but I don't, I just, I, I, I found myself getting really angry and I still feel really angry because we worked on this book for nearly five years mm -hmm. without a question of what it would do for white people. Mm -hmm. Like literally five solid years of hours and hours and hours, nights and motherfucking weekends on this project. And at the end of the day, all I want to talk about is, is it good or not? Did it hit home for some of you? Did it, you know, like, can it? be you know made into another format so that more people can tend to these ideas and really think about and reckon with what it means to build our own archives yeah. those are the conversations i want to have i don't want to be talking about like these other things but i also understand like market is market whatever but i just it, it breaks my heart every time it comes up and i know that that's not what you were asking clearly we had a lot that. to say about it <laughs> wait oh, oh, this is so sad. it really does it really no. makes me sad i'm like it's not a blind spot it's just like, I don't center whiteness in my day-to-day -day life. And I ref I've refused it for so many years of my career. And I just won't start now. We also didn't even get at the totality of blackness before we, like, that's the part that drives me crazy too. This is the last thing I'll say about it for sure. <laughs> but like, there are so many elements of blackness in the black experience. And, you know, the totality, the totality of blackness is not in this book. And yet we're going to talk about what are white people going to get from this? No, I want to talk about what other black people are going to get from this or not get from this. Like, there's still a whole... But I mean, even in that in itself is such a great critique and commentary on just like how we view the labor of black people in service to, mm. right? And so that I'm grateful for because it just, you know, you can, I don't know, it just lays it out beautifully. I agree with that. You know, I think that the, like, you know, it's like the three of us know, right? <laughs> the process of writing a book brings out a lot Um it emotionally like brings out a lot for you. And I think writing a book with someone else also is such a specifically different process, right? Where it is, it is a joint vision, not necessarily like a personal vision, but at the end of the day, it very much is like, did you set out to do the thing that you wanted to do? And did you do it in a way that both like satisfies your creativity and your curiosity? And do you think that it's good? And, you know, that internal barometer, I find that for, um, you know, non-white authors, it really rubs up against like whatever the marketplace like says or wants. So this is just basically my own rant at the publishing industry, you know, mm. and, and so many things, so many things that like I, conversations that we have in private that are sometimes like not productive in public. But I, um, I don't know. I am excited that both of you made this book. I'm excited that you are excited about it, you know? And I think that at the end of the day, it's such a prophetic title, you know? I'm like, Black Future. It's like, the, the future will tell, you know, like what is in store for this book, not the publishing industry of 2020 and 2021. So uh, that's just my rant. Thank you both for coming <laughs> <on>. <laughs> <laughs> no one's gonna let me write a book ever again like they're gonna be like this girl is too militant no thank you you keep writing them and we'll keep reading them like you said line them up we'll knock them down i'm telling you oh everyone needs this book right um let's take a break
So I spoke with Gish Jen, who is the author of several books of both fiction and nonfiction. Her latest is The Resisters, which is a novel set in a future America. It's unclear just how future honestly could be like tomorrow. Um, in some ways, like a really classic, like um, techno dystopian future where um, the society is like super clearly divided between um, the producers who are the haves, they're called the netted, and the um, full time consumers who are the have nots um, called the surplus. And um, basically, it is like a climate changed future where, you know, half the country's underwater. Guess who gets the literal high ground? It's like the rich people. And it's a story about an underground baseball league among the surplus and um, a, a young woman with an incredible pitching arm who um, kind of through her skills makes her way into the world of the netted and has to make a lot of decisions about how she wants to live and her identity and her continued resistance. I cannot wait to listen to this. Gish, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I would love to start off with you talking a little bit about the world of the resistors, not just sort of the mechanics of what is auto America, but what does this world kind of feel like to your characters? Well, of course, first of all, it's a world where a lot of people don't have jobs. Um, you know, that's, by the way, not just my imagination <laughs> that we might not have jobs. I was just looking at a, a McKinsey um, report that sort of suggested that by 2030, you know, we might be out 800 million jobs. So, you know, it's, it's you know, we do have like a big change coming to the society. And in this, in the world that, you know, that I write about, um, a lot of people don't have jobs. Um, they are the surplus. Um, some people do have jobs that are netted, but, a, you know, a job is a very valuable thing. So everyone's very focused on, you know, either having a job or not having a job. Of course, there's been, a you know, climate change. And so um, there's been a lot of flooding. Um, that means that, you know, a lot of places have become kind of marooned places. They're, you know, they're, these are office parks or schools, they're up on a hill now, but they're, you know, they're up on a hill so that you can kind of get to them. They're, they become like little islands. But the surplus who don't have jobs, you know, in a funny kind of way, they have a lot of leisure, you know, so they are able to fence and garden and knit and in, in the case of my characters, play baseball. But it's not really as happy as it could be, um, in part because there's an Aunt Nettie, there's, it's kind of an AI-empowered internet of things that kind of uh, I won't say runs everything, but everything is mediated through Aunt and Nettie. And um, Aunt Nettie is not really interested in supporting these surplus people forever. So there's a sense of menace, you know, that um, on, on the one hand, they theoretically have kind of a universal basic income, but in actuality, they're being what they call winnowed, meaning that there's maybe something suspect about their food. Um, they're definitely not allowed to procreate freely. And also they, there's some sense that, you know, the playing fields, if you're a baseball player, that there are official playing fields, but there are kind of gases coming out of them. And those gases could be poisonous. So um, like I say, it's, it's a world where there's weirdly a lot of leisure, but also a lot of menace. Right. And at the center of, of your story is this small family, parents and a daughter. And I found it really interesting. Maybe this is my own lens on things, but I feel like so many stories center around 
rebellious children and parents who are maybe more beholden to a system. And um, this story, especially in the beginning, is really about a family that has resistance in common or that seems fairly united. And I'm wondering what made you want to uh, write about a family that had resistance in common? Well, there's a lot to resist in this world. And, um, you know, maybe, you know, I, I myself am a parent, and I myself, you know, uh, looking at the younger generation, I see that they are also greatly interested in, in resistance. So I guess, you know, it's interesting that you should say that you're the first person to comment on that. But now that you've said it, um, I do wonder if maybe we, you know, some of our narratives are a little bit different now um, because of the nature of the world that we're living in. You know, to me, uh, Gwen, the daughter, feels um, in many ways like the protagonist of this book, or maybe I'm just personally relating with her more. And um, yet you chose to make her father the narrator. And I'm, I'm curious about that choice and why you made it. I think that as I was writing along and I realized that I actually had two larger than life characters in this book, you know, both Eleanor, mm. who's kind of an Atticus Finch sort of character, right? And mm. um, big resistant, you know, lawyer and and a daughter who is just a preternaturally gifted pitcher. And it occurred to me as a fiction writer, of course, that that's kind of a problem. Like, how are you going to make people <laughs> believe, you know, that you have this, 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 you know, this girl who can pitch, you know, 80 miles an hour plus, right? Like, how are you going to get people to believe that? And the answer is you have to have kind of an ordinary mortal in there somewhere. You know what I mean? You have to somebody looking at her and witnessing what she can do. I mean, nothing would be more off-putting than some some girl getting up there and sort of, you know, you know, I can really pitch. You know, I think in fact I might be the next Satchel Page. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I am really gifted. I mean, you know, that's just not going to wash, right? So you know, you 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 have to have somebody looking at her. I'm the same way. If you were if you were a photographer and you were taking a picture, or, you know, you're trying to photograph. You know Abraham Lincoln, and you know you wanted to make him really look larger than life. And the answer is you've got to take it from, you know, below him, right, looking up. <laughs> and so um, I needed an ordinary mortal to be looking up at these Titanic figures to really give them their full due. There's some observations in the book about baseball being something that is harmed by artificial intelligence or by the perfection of machines rather than improved by it, at least in the kind of dominant thinking of this AI algorithmically driven world of auto America. And it really got me thinking about other things that could be similar sites of resistance, you know, other things that feel more valuable because they are untouched by computer perfection. And, and so I'm kind of wondering why, why baseball of all those things and then um, whether uh, you, use, you yourself have any hobbies or things that you do that are this kind of active, imperfect, um, I don't know, like active resistance just by, by doing it or by passing time that way. Yeah. Well, um, let me say it's because my book was so much about democracy in America, I've always been very, very interested in the American project. And of course, when I was sitting down to this book, you know, Trump administration had been in power for, for you know, 10 months. And it was clear to me that we had a major challenge to democracy. Um, and of course, if you're, if you're thinking that way, uh, baseball is, you know, the perfect metaphor, right? Because, I mean, it is the great American sport. So many of our ideas about the ideal America are tied up with baseball, with the level playing field, everybody getting a chance at that, mm. and America being a place really where, you know, whatever's in you can be realized, right? So, <laughs> so it was a very kind of natural thing for me to be, for, it's a natural metaphor for me to reach for. 
I myself can't throw a ball or <laughs> I cannot throw a ball with beans. In fact, after, you know, many, you know, much writing about pitching, you know, we, um, I live in a lake and we have a problem with geese. And I remember thinking, you know, <laughs> I've been writing. Like you know, there are problematic pain. geese in the book as well. <laughs> yes, yeah, the geese are a big pain. And um, and I thought, you know, clearly I can, you know, I can throw this rock down the hill at them to scare them. And, you know, it's downhill. Despite <laughs> 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 having written and written and written about it, <laughs> I still can only throw a rock like 15 feet, you know. Um so baseball was not my hobby. Um, but I will say in a general kind of way, I think writing itself is a kind of resistance. I mean, in, in my book also, you know, there are many forms of resistance. This family is resisting dehumanizing forces, you know, on every front. And, you know, they, and they are knitting and they are fencing and, you know, do, doing many things which are useless. And, of course, all useless things are kind of resistant in a capitalist society. It's interesting that you say that, you know, for me, so much of this book was, I mean, maybe everything these days for me is about how we make personal decisions in the face of huge injustices, like huge systemic problems, and how we each have to find our own balance between resistance and acquiescence, which is to say that like, no one can be full resistance mode 24 seven all the time. And I'm curious about how you made choices for your characters in balancing or walking the line between how to be forever resisting versus the limits of, of human existence, the limits of exhaustion, um, and how you found that balance for yourself of whether it's possible to be resisting 24-7 or sometimes you just kind of have to pause and even though it might look like a temporary giving in. Well, for my characters, of course, you know, because they live in such an oppressive society, everything they do is resistance, but it isn't necessarily exhausting. I mean, in other words, knitting is not exhausting. Gardening is not exhausting. And then there's nothing to acquiesce to in the sense that, you know, the, the system that they're, they're, they're in is simply oppressive and um, there's no way out. I mean, the only thing really the system is trying to winnow them, it's trying to kill them, but it can't kill them outright. So in a funny kind of way, there's nothing for them to acquiesce to. You know, in my own life, of course, of course, there's a balance, you know, especially when you have children, you know, you cannot simply live your life as you would like. And, um, and of course, you know, you, you make compromises. But I have to say that in my life, I've been pretty lucky, and that I have not had to make terrible compromises. And I have been largely able to do uh, what it is that, you know, I feel like I was put on earth to do. So for me, it's, it's, it hasn't been so bad. Um, that said, if, if, you know, I can't claim that I've never been in a meeting and, and said, you know, maybe I just should say nothing when I would like to say something, you know, mm. I mean, I can't say that, you know, those moments have, have never occurred to me. Um, but I will, I will say that I'm very lucky that the older I get, the less I have to do that. So, mm. um, you know, I don't want to make everybody deeply envious, but, um, but I'm very, very lucky that way. Do you think some of that is about the world changing or is it about your position of power like within publishing or within the spaces that you occupy or wh what do you think that comes from? Hmm. You know, I guess it's just a fit between be between what I've decided to do with myself and what's expected of somebody like me. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Maybe there are times when my younger self would have been afraid, you know? Like, you know, what's going to happen? Will I not be able to publish my next book if I fill in the blank, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, what could happen to me? Um, now, 
I don't really care. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just older. I don't, but first of all, I'm not so fearful. I don't think it's going to happen to me. You know, some magazine or some, I don't know what, you know, so critic uh, is going to look at me cross-eyed. I feel like, look at me cross-eyed. I don't care. You know. <laughs> so there's been an internal shift as well. You know, everything in this book feels and and I suspect is so firmly rooted in things that are happening in present day. I find myself wondering about your process for figuring out which of the many horrible things happening in our world now, or like which which of the many potential futures that like we all see unspooling, you wanted to kind of cherry pick to build this world uh, for the novel. And, and if you had a process about saying like, hmm, I just read this article about AI and that seems like the kind of thing my brain wants to take to its furthest possible conclusion. Um, how'd you keep track? You know, you make the process sound so intentional, you know. Like, <laughs> you know I, I know, I'm asking you I a decide. journalist question. Uh, I definitely decide, you know. I mean, I, it's funny because, you know, my, my right before this was was nonfiction. And um, so I was asked a lot of questions about well, what's the difference between writing nonfiction and fiction? And I sort of said, you know, you can write fiction, you can write nonfiction when you're completely awake. With fiction, you need to be a little asleep. And the fact of the matter is that this is my nightmare. It's what comes up, you know what I mean, when I'm in kind of this twilight zone. And um, so I don't, I don't pick, it's just what I'm worried about. And there's a way in which, you know, if you allow yourself just to kind of worry that way, you know, a lot of things will pop up that will turn out to be quite prescient. You know, no sooner did I finish my book than, you know, COVID came and, you know, the attitude toward the elderly and a lot of the people who were dying was basically that they're expendable, right? And, you know, I didn't write my book thinking, oh, well, maybe there'll be a pandemic and you'll see what I mean that, you know, some, some people in society are seen as expendable. But clearly... I, I thought that. And then when it happened, it was just like, oh, you know, well, but that's always been true, that actually we had this attitude toward the weak and the unproductive, that they're expendable. In the automation riots in my book that are referred to, uh, people storm the Capitol. <laughs> you, know? Mm-hmm. you know, you just have these nightmares. You don't know why. But I guess at some level, it, subconsciously, you do register that these things are possible in the society. And this, you know, kind of this um, very apartheid-like world that is described in my book, very sadly, I do think that that is a possibility still for us. And, um, of course, the book is the nightmare, and you you write the nightmare in order to have, you know, the opposite come true. You don't write the nightmare thinking, oh, I'm hoping this will come true. You write it because you're trying to prevent it from coming true. And, of course, as you know, my book is... On one hand, a dystopia, but it's also kind of a utopia. So it both points to a world that could come to be, which is just beyond terrible. But it also points to people who actually can find another way and who can help, you know, remake the world. Oh, it's so interesting to hear you say that because when I have my own late night spinning out moments, um, I, I do think that the the speculative fiction that I have read um, does play a part in helping me like slot the news in- of the day into this longer term like, negative, frankly, vision for what could become of society. It's interesting to hear you say that about utopia and the waking part of your brain, because I am just now struggling to think about a work of speculative fiction that feels 
truly utopian. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm actually mm -hmm. like, huh, why, what if I laid awake at night thinking about all the possibilities if we all marshaled the power that we have or, you know, on this level of the 25th Amendment and showing up to, to protest for Black Lives or, you know, like all of these things that feel very conscious waking brain we want to do. Um, I'm, yeah, I don't know. And, and that's, sorry, that's not a question. I'm really just thinking about the, the utopian speculative fiction and, and where is it and um, whether that's something I need to seek out for myself. Well, you know, I, I don't think today, as you're sort of saying, if somebody were to write a utopia, I think you'd be bored, you know? <laughs> Because it's not, it's not how we feel. Do you know what I mean? In other yeah. words, it wouldn't resonate. You would just feel like this person's, you know, what are they on, right? Right. I guess um, that's true. Whereas, but, you know, in mine, I, I, I will say that, you know, I think that there is a kind of utopia within my dystopia. And mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's kind of a grounded utopia in the sense that, you know, that utopia is, is born of, you know, the conscious mind thinking, well, what could, what could we do? Um, and it's also born of the fact that, you know, I'm looking at the younger generation and, um, you know, I see a lot of hope. I mean, I don't mean to be any Pollyanna because this is a terrible, terrible moment in American history. But it is also true that I see a young generation, younger generation coming up. They are so savvy. They're so equipped. Uh, you know, they're so they're so clued in. And um, and I don't actually believe that the world that we're in now will go on indefinitely. Um, I actually believe it's, it's going to take some time, but I actually think this country is going to turn around. Hmm. I'm tempted to just end it there because that is such a sentiment. That, <laughs> that's a sentiment I want to leave <laughs> ringing in people's ears. Gish, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, I'm convinced. I will read this book. Thank you. I love the interviews that just function as um, a drumbeat for get this book now, get this book now, you have to read this book. I have to say that, you know, what you were saying earlier about Red Pill in terms of being frequently unsettled by reading it or like having it be anxiety fuel, I definitely had more than my fair share of moments with, um, with this book in that sense. But um, I also think it's really helpful to be able to see the specific contours of like the path that we are on now as a society and realize that like, right, we still, we still get to make choices. We still get to act. Also, I love that we didn't plan this because, um, and I know that this is going to drive you up the wall because you like to be the planner. <laughs> but editorially, we had not discussed that we were going to talk about, you know, like books that were, there was like so much sports and sci-fi and like dystopia and, and future. Like, yeah. And futurism in our book choices, which we had not previously discussed. And that makes me really happy. Ugh, I know it's almost like there is a mood right now of feeling like connected by dystopia resistance and like futurism. I don't know. <laughs> maybe no, it's no, maybe no. it's we're just we're just reading the news and like in this world. Maybe that's what's going on. Right. It's like the news feels fake, but the books are very much real. <laughs> so that, that's where I'm at. <laughs> God, isn't that true when, the, when like, I know, like, there is that adage of the truth is stranger than fiction, but I really feel like at this point, it's a co-equal sort of thing. <laughs> like, everything is strange. The lines between, it's funny how, you know, you always talk about how you're bad at reading fiction and you're, like, better at reading nonfiction. And part of me is, like, the lines are blurring every day, you know? It's, like, not such a clear <laughs> distinction. <laughs> 
it just activates these different parts of my brain where when I read nonfiction, I'm just like, yes, like research, you know, like I get so excited about that part of it. And when I read fiction, I it's it's like that emoji where the brain explodes, you know, like yes. you know the one I'm talking about. Yes, I have like that the mushroom cloud page. head. Yeah. Yes, I have mushroom cloud head at every page. I was like, this came out of someone's imagination. Like I don't, <laughs> I cannot relate, and I am thrilled. This is amazing. Yeah. I know, I know. As my mar- my notes in the margins of Red Pill say, are we in a simulation? Unclear. <laughs> Tune in next week for the next Call Your Girlfriend episode. Um, if we're here talking about inauguration next week, you'll know that we are not in a simulation and like the life continues. Or is that the simulation wanting us to talk about the inauguration of a new president? I don't even know. I don't know. Do we have agency? Tune in. <laughs> Tune in. Tune in. Um, I will see you in the simulation, my love. <laughs> Uh, I mean, most literal interpretation of see you on the internet. Yes, I will see you. (laughs) You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us callyrgf at gmail.com our theme song is by robin original music composed by carolyn pennypacker riggs our logos are by kenesha sneed we're on instagram and twitter at callyrgf our producer is jordan bailey and this podcast is produced by gina delvac